All right, so we're going to be in Isaiah 1 today, and, and, and the way this month is working out, if you maybe missed the beginning or you missed it when we started our identity series, our basic identity here at Ridgecrest is grow, serve, and go. We want to raise up Christ followers who are growing in their faith, serving in their giftedness, and going forth boldly to proclaim the gospel. And because October is the month that we set aside and, and really focus our energy and attention on on, on mobilizing our people and motivating our people to go forward with the gospel. We're spending a uh, full four weeks on it. I'm going to be preaching three different messages, and then Dr. Matt Queen's coming in on the last Sunday of the month to really uh, get us charged up and energized. So last week was the first week that, that I really began to look at what it is to go forward with the gospel, and we looked at it from the perspective of Genesis 11:27 through 12:9. And in Genesis eleven twenty seven through twelve nine, it's the story of Abram getting called out, and he's in Haran, and God calls him to go into the land of Canaan. Now, there's this key passage in there that kind of unfolds and unpacks what this whole thing is communicating to us. And it's when God says, I will bless you, that in all the families of the earth may be blessed. And so what we see in there is the heart of God. We see in there it's the heart of God. So it's not just that, that God comes in and just applies blessing to this guy's life and he just goes on his merry way, but that the blessing of God would be visited upon the families of the earth through Abram, reveals to us, shows to us the heart of God. And so we see God's heart and it, 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 it does something to us. I think it's, it's challenging us, it's informing us uh, how we should respond to God, how we might worship this God, how we might better understand him and, and know what he is calling us and shaping us to be. And so what we see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and, and especially, is the heart of God. God's heart is for the nations. God's heart is for lost people to come to know him and to be saved. And then as we begin to think about it, we say, okay, so like I've got God's heart and it's incredibly challenging and it's incredibly high and exalted and, and I look at it and I'm, I'm intimidated. So the question becomes, if this is what his heart is, then what then should my heart look like? I mean, this, this makes sense, right? So if we see his heart, the automatic question that should pop in your mind, and if it's not, let me populate it for you, is what then should my heart look like? Everybody say, what should my heart look like? I don't know, you're going to have to figure that out. And so let's look, let's look at Isaiah 1. That was clever, thank you. That was clever. I didn't, I didn't do that when I practiced, but I like that. And so in Isaiah 1, 10 through 18, now this is an intense passage, and I just want to let you know going in that it is not my desire to make you feel bad about yourself, but if that's what you get as we walk through this, then, then so be it, Okay. So let me give you a little bit of background about, about Isaiah. Isaiah, when you open up the book, you recognize that this guy was in ministry, in the prophet business, at a really difficult time within the nation of Israel, within the tribe of Judah. And so he is the prophet during a period of time where you have five kings. And so you've got Uzziah and you've got Hezekiah, and these are the only bright marks within his ministry. Uzziah is a good king, he's following God. Hezekiah is a great king, he's following God. But all these other jokers are bringing sorrow and woe to Isaiah's life. And so in the midst of this, you have the Assyrian Empire that are coming in, and they're, they're destroying all the towns around them. And then what we see, and this is in, in Isaiah 37, is 185,000 
of the Assyrian army gather all around Jerusalem. This is when Hezekiah is king. And so this is, a, this is a difficult time. This is not a time when there's tremendous revival and continuous revival. It's just kind of this up and down. It's, there's this ebb and flow. It's this roller coaster of existence. And at the heart of it is this guy, Isaiah, who has the, the difficult message and job of coming through and saying, we need to repent. We need to turn our hearts back to God. And occasionally, as is in the case of Hezekiah, the king gets about it. And the people change, and they surrender their hearts to God, and they begin to follow him and live out lives that are glorifying to God. But what we see here in Isaiah 1, 10 through 18, is that it's not the case at this point of the writing. Things are not going well. Things are difficult, and this amazing thing takes place, which is incredibly appropriate for us to discuss. What we find in the middle of this is that they become incredibly proficient at doing church. They become really good at church. And so if you're going to break this down for a 21st century model, like they, they give 10%, they support missionaries, they go on mission trips, they're filling pews every week, they're saying all the right things, doing all the right things, they are really, really good at doing church. Let's just walk through together. Look at Isaiah 1.10, he says, Hear, if I get the page right, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, uh, lest you think that this is some type of misplaced uh, naming, Isaiah did this on purpose. He is purposely trying to offend them. Imagine that if I walked up on a stage one Sunday morning and I said, Hello, pagans! You're like, huh, what? Like, hello, pagans, hello, hedonists, hello, slovenly people of God. What would your response be? Oh, hey, Pastor Matt. No. <laughs> I think he's talking to my wife again. Like, this wouldn't be your response. You would be upset. You would be devastated. You'd be a little bit irritated. Now, let me, let me cast back this picture for you. If maybe you're not familiar with the Bible, in Genesis, we see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, if you were to compare them to Sin City, Las Vegas today, it makes Sin City look like a retirement community. Sodom and Gomorrah makes Sin City look like a retirement community. They were excellent at pursuing sinfulness. They were perfect at pursuing hedonism. Every delight they had, they saw a way to satisfy it. They were perfect at sin. And so God comes through the prophet Isaiah to his people. In the middle of it, he says... You're Sodom and Gomorrah. Now this should be shocking for them. This should be devastating for them that he refers to them by these people who are known, known, perfected, famous for their opposition to God. And he comes to the one beacon of light, the people of God, Judah. And what does he say to them? Hear the word of the Lord. So it gives us this impression that there's some disconnect between them and their obedience to God. There's some disconnect between them, where they are, and the word of the Lord. And so he's calling on them, waking them up, and he desires to shock them to their very core. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of God, you people of Gomorrah. It's everybody. It's, it's nice when it's our rulers messing up and we look at them and we're like, come on. 
Can we do this right if you're, on a, if you're on a team and the captain of the team or the coach makes a bad call and you're like, man, we could have done this well. Or if you're a part of a country and you don't particularly care for the policies of your rulers, and you're like, we could do a better job than this. And so it's, it's good for us in some sense where we delight in being able to lay blame at the feet of other people. But what he does in this is he lays blame soundly at everyone's feet, you rulers and you people. He comes in in the midst of this, and he describes them in this incredibly offensive way. Now, over and over again, if you read through Chronicles, if you read through um, the books of Kings, it'll say, uh, and so-and-so was the king, and he did a good job, but he left the high places, right? If you've ever read through the Old Testament, this is the pattern you see. So the king comes in, he sets his heart to God, but he doesn't fix everything, does he? But what we see in this passage is, this isn't what... Isaiah is talking about. He's not talking about the rulers that have left some things in existence. He's not even talking about the fact that they're doing these things in the wrong pattern or the wrong way necessarily. Look what he says. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. So he asks this question that gives us the impression that they're in the sacrifice business. As I said, they are very, very good at doing church. They're very good at doing church. And so he comes to them and says, effectively, you are sacrificing all day and all night. What to me? Why should I be satisfied with the incredible number of the sacrifices that you give? And so maybe this is is where you are in your family, in your life. You say, look, I'm here at church on Sundays. I'm here at church on Wednesdays. I go to Sunday school. I go to life group. I help teach. I'm discipling people. I, I, Matt, I believe that, that every believer in faith should give 10%. I believe the New Testament says it should be cheerful, so I smile when I write the check. I believe that we should support missionaries, and so I give it above and beyond that. Matt, I, I, I go on mission trips. This is you. This could be you in this deal. He's not talking about the person that, that interjects into the obedience and worship of God in a slovenly manner. It's not the person that's lazy. It's not the person that's, that's doing this in just this, this scant manner. The multitude of sacrifices. Look what he goes on. He describes their sacrifices. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. So he goes through, and, 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 and maybe your mind switched, and you said, well, they're probably just offering an inferior product. And so probably you've heard somewhere, and you've heard somebody talk about during Jesus' time, they would buy inferior uh, products, in, inferior animals, and they would offer those things that had blemish, or those things that had broken wings, or those things that had broken legs, because they could buy them at the thrift mart, right? And so, in effect, when they went to offer the sacrifice, they would skip, like, the Target Signature store, and they're going to, like, the discount store beside it. And like, what do you have for, like, 50 cents that I can bring in there? It's, and the guy just says, well, it's, it's not quite dead yet, but it's on its way. He's like, i got to be there in five minutes. It can make it. Like, I will give this thing mouth to mouth. I will keep it alive. It's going to be dead soon anyway. And so, in that sense, in that essence, it's a horrid sacrifice to God. But we don't get that impression here. In fact, in Isaiah's description of those things that they're sacrificing, they are, they're good. They're good. Look how he described them. There's a lot of them. They are well-fed beasts. So they're, they're not some skinny, scrawny thing that's being offered to God. They're well-fed. 
They're not delighted in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. These things cost them something. They cost them something. Most of the time that Isaiah is writing, they have this siege mentality and everything around them is more expensive because it's harder to get. So in the middle of being attacked by the Assyrians, they're still offering sacrifices to God. In the middle of of their pasture lands and all these things dwindling, they're still offering sacrifices. They're expensive. They're expensive. And so it gives us the impression that it's not the monetary value associated with our sacrifices that honors God. This is distressing to some of us and really enheartening to others of us. It's not how much money you spend on something that makes God pleased with you. This is the difficult thing for us. Because that's our real metric, isn't it? Like we can look through and look at the giving history and when we went through Malachi, what we discovered is that most people, if we're to take the average person across our church population, the average person gives less to this church than they would spend at Starbucks twice annually. And that's hard. And we would look at that and say the money they spend is an indication of where their heart is. That they're putting their trust in the riches of this world and not the riches of the kingdom of God. But we tend to look at the people that give a lot of money, look at the people that are incredibly generous, and to them we say, well done, you good and faithful servant. Because why? Because we evaluate them on the basis of those things we can observe. It's human nature. We, we evaluate them based upon how we see them doing. And so what we see in here, if somebody were to look at them and be like, you guys are killing it with the sacrifices this year. I mean, you got goats stacked up this high behind your house, right? You got goats stacked up this high. You got vats of blood. You have all of these things you're sacrificing to God. And they'd be like, you're absolutely right. Nobody can out-sacrifice me. But God goes to them, and his word to them is, what then it to me is the multitude of your sacrifices. Look at verse 12. When you come before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. They're trampling his courts. When they come into worship before God, the way that he sees it and pictures, it might be packed and this whole thing might be full, but the way that he looks at it, he says, why are you trampling my courts? The whole time I'm in high school, uh, we, we owned horses. And, and my job as the low man on the totem pole was mucking stalls. And if you've never mucked a stall, it's just a, a specialized term for, for cleaning the poop out. Like, that's what it is. You're the poop cleaner. I don't know why they call it mucking. Somehow that's better. <clears throat> Same job, though. And so I, I would do it before school. I'd do it in the evenings. And, and for whatever reason, along the way, I started taking pride in my job. You know, like you should take pride in those things you do. It makes you work a little harder. And so I'd go in there, and we had this rake, and you, you pick it up, and you shake, and, and, the, and the shavings would fall to the floor, and you'd end up with a prize. And you take that prize it's not really a prize. You take that and you throw it in the wheelbarrow and you roll it out. And then I'd bring in these, these big old bags of wood shavings. I mean, just kind of, you know, doing this number, trying to get it in, trying to see how many I could carry at a time. And I'd set the wood shavings down. And I'd get the hoof knife out of my back pocket. And I'd run around that bag and wood shavings would spill everywhere. And then I'd take the other rake and I, I would, you know, get them wall to wall, wood shavings this deep, sand below that, 
and uh, rubber mat below that. And I would stand back at the door to the stall and just, I mean, it smelled good for like the first time in a while. And it looks nice. It looks really nice. It's, it's pristine. And then I'd go out and I, I'd open the gate and a horse would come in. You know the first thing they would do? They'd walk over to me and say, golly, thanks for this. And then they'd poop all over the place. And they would trample everything I had just done. I mean, they'd come in, spin around a little bit, roll around, stand up, poop. And I'd just say, I just, I just, I, like, I just made this. And they would trample this thing that I had made look pristine. Effectively, this is the same word applied here. God looks down, and when he sees everybody come in, he says, you're disregarding me and my temple by your heart manifestation towards me. Presence before God, your attendance in church on Sunday, on Wednesday, in a life group, in whatever Bible study, you go to community Bible study, you meet men three times a week, all of these things, the multitude of your sacrifices, your attendance before God does not merit God's favor. It doesn't merit God's favor. He says, who required this trampling of you? So that he comes to them and he doesn't want to smell their incense. Why? Look at there at the end of verse 13. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. We recognize there's something wrong with them, not their sacrifice. Iniquity, sin, whether it be disbelief or some other heart disposition. He said, I can't endure iniquity in solemn assembly. When they come together and it's meant to be for the express purpose of worshiping God, he says, look, I can't long endure this. Verse 14, your, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me, and I'm weary of bearing them. He moves into all of the different ways they worship him. Now, all of their worship before God was demonstrated through the offering of sacrifices. And now he's showing us that, that the calendar, as it's, as it's new moon, as it's all of these things, they're all an abomination before God. So showing up to, to specially appointed things. Look at how he describes them. They've become a burden to me, and I'm weary of bearing them. My heart fears. My heart is afraid that, that in, in, in trying to drive us to do certain things, that in trying to get us to be excited about certain things and promoting certain things, that we've somehow communicated the message that our attendance that the doing of things merits the favor of God. But in reality, God looks at it, and he stares at our hearts, and he peers to our innermost being, and he says, I can't bear iniquity in solemn assembly. Brothers that are hard, hardened against other brothers, sisters that are hardened against other sisters, families that are torn apart, unrepentant sin in our lives, and when God peers at us, when he looks at us, that he's not primarily concerned with how many times our, a box gets checked beside our name in giving, how, much, how many times a box gets checked beside our name in attendance. But that we tend to value the wrong things and don't value things as God would value them. Look how devastating the situation has become. Verse 15. When you have spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. 
That's how he describes them. Prayer is probably one of the more intimate forms of worship before God. It's just you and God. You have your hands up. You are, you are praying to him. You are pouring out your heart before him. He is looking at your heart. You're laying your request before him. And how does he describe them? He says he doesn't want to look at them. He says he doesn't want to hear from them. He says your hands are full of blood. They valued the wrong thing. It's not that they didn't pray enough. In fact, what did he say? Your many prayers. Even though you make many prayers. Friends, you may spend every day and every hour of every day on your knees and your heart could still be far from God. Being good at church does not make God fondly disposed towards you. In fact, what we see from this is being good at church is an obstacle to drawing close to God. Being good at at, at church, at at the rigors of just going through this thing, makes it so incredibly difficult to be close to God. But it's this this difficult tension that, that we have to seek to maintain because these are good things. Like attending church... We see in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 that we should not forsake the gathering together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day draws near. Like we see that it is good for us to gather together with other brothers and sisters in Christ. It is good for us to give of our tithes and, our, and, our, and, and to give honorably before God in an, in an offering. It's good before God. This is why you see the tithe mandated in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he calls us to sacrificial giving and joyfully so. These things are good, and these are things that we should do. We should attend church. We should give to church. We should worship God. We should gather with the saints outside of just Sunday mornings. And so it's stuck in this difficult thing that that we, we slip our minds, our minds slip into this understanding that by doing these things, God is more favorably disposed towards us. But look what he says next. It's not in the doing of these things, but it's in being who you are and who he has made you to be. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes and cease to do evil. Somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, they began to think that if they did these things before God, that he would give them stuff. That what God required was sacrifice. That what God required was that they are frequently praying before him. That what God required of them was the outward demonstration of these things. And then that was all there was. See, one of the things they neglected to remember is is found in Deuteronomy 6. It's the Shema, hear, O Israel. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we find out this incredible theological truth about God, that he is wholly one and radically singular. He's one in a wholly different way than they see in in those things around them. He is echad, he is one. But look what the first thing they say after they move through this tremendous theological truth about God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, And these words that I command you today shall be on your 
heart. Everybody say, God should be on my heart. God should be on our heart. He should be captivating the very essence of who we are. He already owns all of our stuff. All the money in our bank accounts are his. Our homes are his. Our lives are his. Our time is his. But what he asks us for are our hearts. He calls us to surrender our hearts to him. To instruct our children to surrender their hearts to him. And so he comes to them. Observing all of the different ways that they worship him through giving offerings. All of the different animals they sacrifice. All of the different time that they give. All of the money that they surrender. All of the ways they humble themselves before God. And what does he say to them? Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. He is calling them to repentance. The reason God desires to go in and to shock them, the reason that he refers to them as Sodom and Gomorrah is not so that they'll feel bad and do better. You see how the distinction is there? We want somebody to try harder, what do we do? We Likely we insult what they're doing now. You're doing a terrible job. What are we implying? They should do a better one. He's not calling them to sacrifice more. He's not calling them to pray more. He's not calling on them to give more. He's calling on them to surrender all. He wants their hearts. He's calling on them to demonstrate repentance. And this is why in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is able to refer. Look, flip over to Luke 9. Sorry, Luke 18 and 9. Jesus gives this amazing picture, and I want you to spend some time this week thinking about this. We don't have time to unpack the whole thing. Jesus is teaching parables to the disciples. Verse 9, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So Luke, Luke already tells us what it's going to be about. Two men went into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Look at all the stuff he does. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's a righteous man. You were to look at this guy, you were to say, this is a righteous man. You were to describe to your children what they should be like when they get older, you would describe this man on the basis of everything you observe. You think he's doing it right. He gives a tithe, he's frequently in church, he's fasting. If you were to bring him into our context, he is the guy that when you look at his outward life, you would say, this guy should be an elder. If anybody's doing it right, it's this guy. If anybody has the corner on the market of God, it's this guy. He demonstrates perfectly outward righteousness before God. Fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. He'd given his heart before God. So he's personally broken about sin in his life. 
There's no outward manifestation of pride. There's no outward manifestation of, I've got this thing right. He won't even look up. Jesus offering commentary says, I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God is calling on us to be shocked, to be devastated, and to repent. To repent of our hard feelings, to to repent of our gossipy ways, to repent of our pride, to repent of just the thought of thinking we've got this all figured out and we're fine. He's calling on us to repent of being good church people. Now this is, this is an epidemic that typifies the majority of the people in our community. Good church people. God looks at all of us who are good church people and what he says is, who required of you this trampling of my inner courts? What is your multitude of sacrifices before me? He looks at the good church people of our community. He looks at us, and what he says to us is, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Allow God to change your heart. Ask God to soften your heart. Ask God and say, God, which ways am I being prideful? God, which ways am I being arrogant? God, which ways have I even just slipped into moving through the motions of church? And look what he does next. He's not giving them the requirements of righteousness. We're so quick when somebody comes in and they say, I'm having trouble with these things. We say, all right, you just need to do this and then you'll be righteous. Effectively, that's, that's kind of the pattern that we teach people. But look what he says. Notice that in verse 16, he's telling them to wash themselves to repent. And so really what he shows us in verse 17 is not the good things to do, but he shows us the overflow of the heart. Verse 17 says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. And so we read this, and I'm like, ah, like, I just don't understand. Are these things better than sacrifice? Are these things better than, than, than giving of my money? Are these things better than giving of my time? That's the wrong question. James, seeking to address this in his, in his work, gives us this in James 1.27. He says, religion, religion that is pure and undefiled before the God the Father is this, visit the orphans and widow in their affliction, and keep oneself unstained from the world. We get the picture. We get this picture that in repentance, God changes our hearts. And that in desiring to do these things, it's not us doing things that God is more favorably predisposed towards, but it is in doing those things that he's implanted in our hearts to do. Notice he doesn't describe the obedience of church attendance. He doesn't describe the obedience of giving of your tithes and offerings. He's describing things that are manifested in the heart. Each one of the ways that he calls us costs something of us. Learn to do good. In the very beginning of verse 10, he told them to hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord today is to learn to do good. How do we learn to do good? 
How do we learn to seek that which is righteous instead of that which just makes us feel righteous? We spend time worshiping Jesus. You spend time worshiping Jesus. You spend time studying his heart, the heart of God, which is for the nations. You spend time on your face before him, crying out, God, not make me righteous, but God, reveal to me my unrighteousness. God, help me to know you. And then you are known by others in community. You walk vulnerably before those around you. That whether you struggle with the sin of pornography or pride, lust or laziness, in whatever way you struggle, your brother or sister comes along beside you and says, man, I see you struggling. I see your countenance is weighed down. Maybe you're good at playing the game and good at having nobody be able to tell what you're really struggling with. Then it is on you to confess your sins one to another as we see in 1 John. And to come to someone and to say, man, I am weak. I struggle with this. Would you walk along beside me? Would you help to keep me humble and help to keep me working on this? He comes to them. He says, learn to do good. Genesis 12 gives us a picture of God's heart. But so many of us find a picture of our own heart starting in Isaiah 1.10. We are Sodom and Gomorrah. We're seeking to do all of this stuff for God so that he might love us more. What he tells us is that we need to learn to do good. And then when he begins to change our heart, when he begins to, to transfigure us in a sense from being selfish to selfless, the overflow of this is that we would seek justice. The overflow of this is that we would correct oppression. The overflow of this is that we would bring justice to the fatherless and we would plead the widow's cause. Each and every person in this list can bring nothing to us. Each and every person in this list can bring nothing to us. Each and every person in this list is somebody that is marginalized, somebody that requires something incredible of us just to be a part of their lives. Listed among this list. We stand and we, we advocate for life. We're, we're decidedly pro-life. Last week we highlighted Rafa. But what does it mean that we would seek to correct oppression? What does it mean that we, would, that we would contend for these? Bring justice to the fatherless. It is investing ourselves in the life of someone who's right on the cusp of being marginalized. Not just holding a sign, not just condemning, not just writing uh, to let letters to the head of Planned Parenthood saying that you're awful, you're terrible people. It's not in doing these things. It's investing our lives in the life of the pregnant teenage girl. It's coming alongside her and saying, look, God loves you. God sent his son Jesus to die for you. He loves you. He loves your unborn child. We want to be with you. We want to walk through this with you. And for some of us, it's going to mean adopting that child. For others of us, it's going to mean paying so this girl can live in an apartment because her parents kicked her out. For some of us, it's, it's, it's when we get to that corner and you see the beggar on the side of the street, you have already bought a stack of Chick-fil-A, McDonald's, grocery cards, or whatever it is. Why? So that you can purposely engage this man. We too often have the excuse, well, I don't, I don't carry cash. I don't carry cash. And I, I can be honest with you. I've said this same thing. And you know what? Every time I carry cash, God tells me to give it away. Super frustrating. <laughs> like as a frugal saver... Somebody gave me some money last year, 
And, and, and the very next day, someone needed money, and God said, give it away. I was like, gum it! Like, I'm never going to buy the stuff I want if you keep making me give it away. He's like, maybe you don't need that stuff. But I want that stuff. This summer we were in Ohio. I never carry cash. I hate cash. It's dirty, the things people do with cash. And this guy walks up to me on the street, and he starts giving me the story about how he locked his keys in his car. And I just want to be like, I don't need the story. Just take my money. Because that's what's going to happen. At the end of it, I look at Valerie, and I say, I know he's not going to bring the money back, but it's okay. I just wish you wouldn't have lied to me. God calls us to invest ourselves. We need to think ahead. If you don't want to give money to somebody, then find something you can give. We are quick to give the gospel and to do so at arm's length. We drive by, we give the person a track, we drop a track in a hat, they're, they're playing for money, and, and then we just start backing away. It's almost like, here's Jesus, he's got it. We all become Calvinists right then and there, right? If you're going to be saved, you're going to be saved. If some of you aren't theologically inclined. You should, you should totally look that up later. That joke kills at the Reformed churches. You also don't get invited back for that one. We need to invest our lives. It gets messy. Can I tell you all that? Like Joe shared the story of, of the woman that we helped that came here and worshipped. But it was difficult. I remember many weeks, Carolyn meeting with her, and, and she would say, I think I'm going to do this. And Carolyn counseling with her and, and talking to her about how, how to spend money and, and how to spend your time and, and how to pursue an education and how to be reacquainted with your children. It is difficult if we invest ourselves in this. But when we look at God's heart, when we look at how so many of our hearts look, and then we fully surrender ourselves and we repent, of our self-righteousness. We repent that we have just done church. It's going to make you a person that firmly, solidly invests yourself in the lives of the marginalized around you. This is what he's calling us to as a church. Our identity of go isn't just on foreign soil. It's here in Greenville. It's on Stonewall Street. It's on Wesley Street. It's as you cross over and you see the person holding the sign that says, we'll work for food. It's at Women in Need. It's in all of these places. It's at Monday night at CR. It's at each and every place we come in and we see somebody that is marginalized by this world and we recognize that they are valued by God. God does not value us on the basis of our potential to give to him. He values us on the basis of what Jesus gave to all. He says, wash yourself, learn to do good. And look what he says here at the end. For all of us would-be Pharisees, for all of us who struggle with this, look at what he says to us here at the end. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. God is not asking you to be perfect, friends. In fact, he recognizes that we frequently mess up. As Brendan Manning described it, the cheese is steadily sliding off of the cracker. That's our life. What he's calling us to, he says, come let us reason together. And he describes us. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you would repent. 
If you would freely submit all of your heart to God, he would cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So incredibly freeing. That when God looks at our heart weighed down by the obligation of obedience, weighed down by the obligation of church attendance, weighed down by the obligation of giving, weighed down by the obligation of outwardly demonstrating our service before him, what does he say? Though your sins are many, the atoning blood of Jesus will cover them. Though you are as scarlet, you shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. For many of us, it was, as we read this and as we spend time looking at it, it's an incredible wake-up call. It's a sweet mercy of God that he would desire to wake us up as we look at this. He certainly desired to wake up Judah, and this is why he referred to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. Could God be calling on you to wake up from your church-induced stupor? God be calling you to wake up. You haven't missed a Sunday since only God knows when and he knows you had never missed a Sunday. Could God be calling you to, on you to wake up? For others of us, it, it, it's not this, this, this wake up that we've grown lazy, but we've been really just struggling. We've been struggling to be here every Sunday. We've been struggling to give all that we can. We've been struggling to give all of our time and somehow... We know it not to be true, but somehow we have placed obedience to God and we've tied it to God's favor. Maybe this is how it was for you being raised. The more obedient and, and, and selfless you were, the easier time you had at home. Or this is how your human relationships are. The more you give, the better it goes for you with your husband or with your wife or with your boss. Not so with God. There's incredible freedom for you in this. For you, it's, it's, it's not this, this struggle of doing these things, but for you, it's this, you want to be loved. And that's why you do them. God would have you know today, friend, that God loves you. That in Titus 3, 5, we see that it is not on the basis of deeds done by you in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God doesn't love you because you're able to do good or righteous things. God loves you according to his own mercy. There's tremendous freedom in that. Surrender your heart to him and be set free. And then lastly, there's, the, there's those of us in this room who have yet to surrender our heart to God. Every time you hear something like this, a sermon like this, you begin to think, it's just one more thing for me to do. It's just one more thing for me to get right before I can come to God. Or it's just, just one more thing that shows Christianity to be an incredibly difficult thing. Friend, for you, God recognizes that there is no work that you're able to do in righteousness. And that when he looks at your life, he's not saying you're not doing enough of the right things, but you've never done the one right thing, which is fully surrendering your heart to Jesus. That he would call you into repentance and that he would look at you, peer into your heart and see you dirty, to see you marred, to see you stuck in your sin and bid you come. Come let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall be like wool. Would we be a people that would pursue the heart of God? that would surrender ourselves and give our all to him so that he might change us, that he might transform us, and that he might make us new. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you 
Father, thank you so much that you love us, you are good to us, and we recognize we are undeserving. So God, for that, we're just all the more encouraged. God, you are not a taskmaster coming to us and saying, you need to get it right, you need to quit messing up, but you are the kind, gracious, and loving Father who comes to us and says, come to me, child. Come and be loved. Come and be adored. Come and be forgiven. Father, I pray that, that you would grant us the strength to request from you forgiveness. And Father, I pray that we would forgive ourselves. God, just ask that you continue to move in our hearts, to stir in our assembly. That in whatever way, Father, you're calling us to respond this morning, that we would be obedient to do so. So, God, as we continue now in worship, that those things that you're stirring in our hearts and your spirit is convicting in our souls, that we would be faithful and obedient to follow through on. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.